Did you ever see a dream walking? Well, I did. Did you ever hear a dream talking? Well, I did. Did you ever have a dream thrill you? When will you be mine? Oh, it's so grand, and it's too, too divine. Did you ever see a dream dancing? Well, I did. Did you ever see a dream romancing? Well, I did. Did you ever see heaven right in your arms? Ain't I love you? I do. Well, the dream that was walking and the dream that was talking and the heaven in my arms was you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Around the World. In 80s movies. My name is Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews there anytime at Quipster.net. Q W I P S T E R.net. I also want to let you know that I do a film review podcast that covers brand new movies, very similar to this one, but usually what I'm reviewing is something that's out in theaters or has been in theaters recently. Check out the Quipster Film Review Podcast. Just do a search for it wherever you're listening to this right now and you'll probably find it. Today we're going to continue on with the second of our Nightmare on Elm Street series. Of course, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge. It came out the following year from the previous entry, 1985. It's an R-rated film, as are they all really, for gore. Disturbing images, nudity, and violence. The runtime is an hour and 27 minutes, and the cast includes Mark Patton, Kim Myers, Robert Englund, Robert Rustler, Clue Gallagher, Hope Lang, and Marshall Bell. The director is Jack Shoulder, and the screenplay is by David Chaskin. Although the budget for A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is higher, and the acting is a little bit better than the previous entry had been, Freddy's Revenge, as I'll probably call it most of the way, through this review, it really comparatively lacks the imagination and the better horror direction of the original A Nightmare on Elm Street. Obviously, many of the reasons stem from the lack of involvement by the creator of Nightmare on Elm Street, Wes Craven. Here he's replaced in the director's chair by relative newcomer Jack Shoulder, and the new screenwriter for this film is first-timer David Chaskin. Although it is a sequel to the first movie. I mean, it takes place in the same house that uh, Nancy, the original heroine from the first film, the one that she lived in, it incorporates her diary as part of the plotting. This entry has an entirely new set of characters, except for, of course, Freddy Krueger, making it a bit different this time around. As such, and because none of the future entries in the series refer back to Freddy's revenge very much, some of the fans of A Nightmare on Elm Street as a franchise consider this to be more of a spin-off than it is a sequel, and they don't usually bother lumping it in with the others in terms of the continuity. It's also much lighter in tone. It's almost a comedy in many respects. It has vibrant color schemes. It has an entirely different score than any of the other films. In fact, it's the only entry in the Nightmare on Elm Street series not to use Charles Bernstein's theme music in its scoring. Although this film did come out only a year after the original in the theaters, the setting of the movie is five years after the events that you find in A Nightmare on Elm Street. No one has taken up residence in the barred-up house that was the home of the Thompsons since the mother reportedly killed herself and the daughter went crazy. At least that's what you find out in this film. 
the new family that moves in there after that five-year hiatus are the Walshes. You have Ken and Cheryl and their teenage son, Jesse, played by Mark Patton. It doesn't take long before Jesse begins to have some terrifying nightmares. All of them are involving this strange, scarred-up character named, of course, Fred Krueger. Krueger does not seem to be out to kill Jesse, but rather he intends to use Jesse to do his dirty work. He requests to take over his body and to have him kill others for him. And try as Jesse might to fight it, Freddy's powers begin to overwhelm him and people start dying. Jesse really doesn't have anyone to turn to but the girl that he's been seeing, named Lisa, played by Kim Myers, who knows that Jesse is a good person inside. He just has to be stronger than Freddy to stop the madness. At least that's how she feels. So, although they had a bit of a contentious relationship during the making of the film, the producer of the Nightmare on Elm Street series, Robert Shea, he had been still half hoping for a return from a directorial effort anyway from Wes Craven, the creator of the series, even if he was not involved with the screenwriting chores. They already had a script and they were ready to go. They hoped Craven would do it, but... It was not to be. Craven had given up his creative rights to his ideas to New Line as part of the deal to get his film made in the first place. He didn't like the possession aspect of the story direction for this follow-up, and he thought that someone other than Freddy should not be committing the murders. On top of that, he asserted that his film, the first one, had never been meant to have a sequel, even though it did have kind of an ambiguous ending. He was not happy with that either. He wanted a happier ending in which everything was all a dream. But Shea thought that if it was a success, they should leave the door open for the possibility of future sequels. And so, therefore, it was a hit, and Shea continued with the series. Now, Shea, as well as all of the rest who were involved with the making of this film, ended up reluctantly hiring a director with a little bit over a month prior to principal filming to take into consideration. Jack Shoulder was the director they hired. This was really kind of his only second feature, but he would end up shouldering the load of the burgeoning franchise he had a little bit more money for special effects this time out. Not a lot more. I mean, it was a reported $3 million to work with. The predecessor only had about $2 million, so it was a marginal upgrade. The film is a little bit gorier than the first entry when it has gore. It does have a lighter tone to it, though, and some gruesome body horror moments, such as Freddy peels back his scalp in order to expose his brain when he says, you know, you got the body, but I've got the brain. Uh, there's a scene where claws develop out of Jesse's hands, and then his arm begins to disintegrate horrifically, and there's this memorably grotesque scene where Freddy emerges as if he's digging his way out of Jesse's chest from within. I guess if you're somebody who's titillated by gore, you're going to get some mileage out of this movie. It doesn't do a lot for me, personally, but while Freddy's revenge is not really in keeping with the first film in terms of the nature of Freddy Krueger as a character himself, his powers seem to now come with the house, I guess. It still has this very interesting premise, and it at least takes a direction that makes it less of a rehash of the first film than other slasher film sequels have been. In fact, you know, you take your Halloweens and your Friday the 13th and all of the other knockoffs, and really the second film is almost always a carbon copy of the first film. Not so much with Freddy's Revenge. And as different as it is from Wes Craven's original vision, it is still marred by being a bit derivative of other horror films, especially when you compare it to what happens in the Amityville Horror or The Exorcist or Carrie. It's much more in keeping with those kinds of movies. So I won't say it's a fresh and original take, but at least it was somewhat different for this franchise. 
At its core, it's still the same demonic possession movie, though, that we've seen before and we know quite well. And instead of moving forward in the genre like the first entry, the series ends up taking a step back to more old school tactics. And the film just has a feel that's a little bit too familiar to drum up a high amount of entertainment. And by today's standards, Freddy's Revenge is also the most dated of the series. It stems firmly in the style of filmmaking that ran rampant in teen films during the 1980s. You had your feathered hair, your brightly colored collared shirts, the tight blue jeans, the lip-syncing musical interludes, the homoeroticism, and I'll get into that a little bit more later because that's kind of a main theme of this film. You have a lot of dumb schoolhouse humor, though, that abounds. It's probably the only film in the series that deliberately appeals only to those that like teen films and horror flicks instead of just the latter. And so the result feels much more juvenile and a lot less scary. And despite its teen flick leanings and the fact that the film is set in high school, all of the cast members look like they should be on their way to graduate school. They're a very old looking bunch for a bunch of high schoolers. The sexuality here is also a bit stronger than you would typically find in a Nightmare on Elm Street film. It merges the slasher film with the horny teen movies that were also popular in the era. And though, as I mentioned, there is a bit of a gay subtext that some viewers are going to pick up on within the story. We have plenty of shirtless male photography, tidy whitey briefs that are on display in this film. There's an early scene where Jesse's dancing by himself seductively, albeit in a comical fashion, a little bit akin to a risky business. He's burst in upon by his mother and the potential love interest just as he holds this pop gun in the most phallic of fashions. Now, one could read into this film, especially in Jesse's plight as someone who's struggling with being the person that Lisa wants him to be, i.e. she wants him to be her lover, but he has this inner desire that tells him that his impulses lie elsewhere. Embodied in Freddy Krueger, it becomes a tug of war between his would-be girlfriend and the older male figure in Freddy that tells him what to do. There's also this gym coach that's in the film that picks up on Jesse in one particular scene in a gay bar and then takes him back to the school's boys' shower room for a rendezvous. And that's assuming it wasn't all a dream, only for Freddy to put the coach in bondage and then spank his bare bottom with a towel and then put a gruesome end to it all, as you would expect from this film. There's also a makeout scene that occurs between Jesse and Lisa. It ends up abruptly ending when he's actually repulsed by his own nature, in which his body undergoes changes that he can't control. And Lisa is going to end up dying as a result, so he kind of puts the kibosh on it. In the end, despite her feelings, and Jesse's conflict within, she takes charge to try to help him be the person that he was meant to be by helping him to destroy the hatred that he has for himself. And that hatred is embodied by Freddy Krueger. Some have championed this film to cult status because of this underlying subtext. Some would say it's not even a subtext, it's actually a text. Now, Mark Patton, who plays Jesse Walsh, he was closeted at the time. He did come out as gay years later. And speaking of Mark Patton, as far as his casting here, it wasn't necessarily because he was gay. He beat out future stars like John Stamos, Brad Pitt, Christian Slater, who were considered for the role. Even Michael J. Fox was considered for the role, but he ended up being too busy to even consider the film seriously because he was working on Back to the Future and Teen Wolf almost simultaneously. Now, the film is an outlier in the series, as I've mentioned, not only because it has more comedic elements than any of the rest of the films, but also because Mark Patton is the only male lead in any of the Nightmare on Elm Street films, and that's a rarity for the slasher film genre in general during the 1980s. Although revenge is in the title, Freddy's Revenge, there really isn't a revenge plot that's hashed in the film, 
and the vendetta against the offspring of the people who burned and murdered Freddy for his child-killing ways that we learn about in the first film is not exacted upon anyone in particular who has any relation to any of those people here. And just as with the first film, the makers were going to go with a stuntman in the role of Freddy, and then they ended up pulling in Robert Englund. Englund had initially asked for more money than New Line felt that they really needed to spend for the role. They thought that they could really pull it off with somebody else, but the acting demands of the role necessitated somebody of his capabilities in order to return, so they were willing to play ball with England and bring him back. The role is, again, a minor one in terms of England's overall screen time. You know, the film's 87 minutes, Freddy's only in the film about 13 minutes, but that's nearly twice as many minutes as Freddy Krueger had in the first entry, so a little bit more Freddy here, even though he's not in it that much. Freddy is also a different vibe this time out. He's shown much more in good lighting this time out. He's not really lurking in the shadows nearly as much. He's out and about in the real world. That's something that breaks a basic rule for the series, and it also lessens the mystique and the nightmarish qualities that Wes Craven had harnessed so effectively. The presumption, I guess, is that Freddy is somehow weakened still from his experience from five years prior, and that he only has enough power to manipulate one person's dreams, that being, of course, Jesse, and that in order for him to gain strength, he has to compel Jesse to murder, to feed his hunger until he can regain his former prowess, at least that's what you have to kind of read into the film. This is an angle that's unique to this entry in the series. Every other chapter that follows this chooses to emulate Wes Craven's original vision instead of anything that's newly introduced in this follow-up. Despite Wes Craven's departure and despite having no bankable stars, Freddy's Revenge still would prove to be a pretty big hit at the box office domestically. It garnered $30 million off of a budget that was a tenth of that take, Internationally, it also did quite well. In fact, it even was better received critically by those moviegoers who also enjoyed the daring nature of that sexual subtext that flew over the heads of most American audiences. In fact, Jack Shoulder didn't even recognize those themes that David Chaskin had put in at the time. Americans really were not accustomed to any kind of deviation from the norm in these matters. Even though there were a lot of homoerotic themes, Top Gun, you can name quite a few others that were very popular in the 1980s, it really kind of flew over the heads of most people at the time. It's only through the prism of today that a lot of people see all of these things, especially within Freddy's Revenge. So as far as the film overall goes and my feelings about it, I would say that the film does not really encroach nearly as bad until Freddy is finally unleashed and then it becomes a cheap slasher movie that makes very little sense after that and although it has been established that Freddy is a master of the dream domain somehow those powers seem to come to him in the real world in a way that doesn't quite sit well with a lot of fans of this series and Freddy himself does not seem to dispatch many if any in the nightmare realm within the course of this movie and as bad as many of these scenes are from a thematic and a narrative standpoint, they're still far better than the film's climax where Jesse's girlfriend Lisa assumes the role of the hero by using love to thwart Freddy's rampage and to try to strengthen Jesse's resolve to fight him. It's a little bit too much and too out of place for this series, especially in retrospect. So Freddy's Revenge, I would say it's not the worst of the Elm Street films. There are a few that come later, which I'm going to talk about in future episodes that are worse than this in terms of the quality, but I would say overall, it's the least necessary film. I think you can actually skip the film altogether 
and continue watching the series going from the first entry to part three, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. So unless you're rabid for all things Freddy Krueger, I would say there's really not a compelling reason to watch it other than your own curiosity or because you're some sort of completist. So I would say think of Freddy's Revenge as more of a what-if film than it is as canon, and maybe you'll be able to overlook the fact that this has very little association with the others and try to come to appreciate it on its own. But still, I grade the film for what it is. I don't think this is a very good entry if you look at it from any kind of objective eye other than what you bring into the film. So I would say... I'm going to give A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, two stars out of four. And two stars on my scale means that it's lacking something vital that would keep it from being a worthwhile entry that I would recommend to most people. And that thing that it's lacking is any kind of really good suspense, good horror scares, an interesting plot or great acting or anything like that. I appreciate the film for trying to do something different. I don't think that it went into enough unique ways, at least when compared to other horror films, as I mentioned, to make it stand out on its own. It really regurgitates so many things that were done in horror films and teen films and other films that were very popular of its era. It's very much of its time and of its place. And by that fact, it doesn't really stand out, I don't think, as an overall film, even if it's kind of an outlier within the series itself. So two stars out of four is the best I can give A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts as far as Freddy's Revenge goes, I do encourage you to seek me out. You can find my contact information at my website at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. As far as what I'm going to be reviewing next week, of course... I'm going to continue on with the Nightmare on Elm Street series with A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. And that's going to be coming up next week. A lot of people consider that the best film in the series. So will I agree with them? I haven't seen that film since I was a teenager, I will admit. So I'm definitely looking forward to reevaluating that film for next week's episode. A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Check that out if you've been keeping up with all of the reviews as I get to them. Until then, thanks everyone for listening and joining me on this journey around the world in 80s movies.